Appreciate that, brother. Um, hey, good morning, everybody. My name's uh, Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at SCC. And um, well, thank you. Wow, some of you are so enthusiastic. So uh, if you are new around here, if you've been in the last uh, month or month and a half, you're like, who is this guy? Like, where's Craig? You know, where's Mike? Where's, where's Lee? Where are some of those folks? They're still here and around, but um, I, today's actually my first day back from sabbatical. Uh, that actually even went a little longer just because of some things that kind of rolled into my family's life during that time. In fact, next week, I'm going to talk about um, just some of the things God taught me you know, while I was on my sabbatical, some of the things got impressed upon my heart, but that comes uh, next week, you know, not today. Today, I want to say this. I just want to express my gratitude. I love coming to work every day with the team of leaders that I get to lead with. I love getting to work and serve our Lord Jesus with our staff, with our elders. I'm so grateful to get to do uh, the, the, what God's called me to do alongside people that I respect and admire and love, and I love getting to watch God use them. And so what a joy it's been for me. One of the things I did do during my sabbatical was I got to watch online all the messages that we did in our Jonah series. Didn't you think our teaching pastors did a phenomenal job with that series? I thought so too. I was so encouraged about that series. And in fact, when because I'm a preacher, I, I just want to make a few additional insights about uh, the book of Jonah. One of the things I love about the book of Jonah is um, Jonah preaches an eight-word sermon. And an eight-word sermon turns a city upside down. God just does amazing things, an eight-word sermon. And I think the takeaway for us as God's people is that we don't have to talk about Jesus a lot. We don't have to talk about Jesus in every conversation that we have, but we have to say something. You know, an eight-word sermon. So what is it that your friends and family members need to hear from you in order to transform their lives, shape and change their hearts and minds before, before Jesus? And then one of my favorite verses in the book of Jonah occurs in chapter 3. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It says, after Jonah said no, after Jonah ran, after God had to do a miracle that Jesus references, uh, you know, it was then that only the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And here's why I love that. Because we're a people, every one of us, that all need second chances and third chances and fourth chances. And I'm so grateful that the grace and mercy of God results in second and third and fourth and fifth chances. Because I tell you this, we are a second chance people. And I'm so grateful that our God is a second chance God. And, uh, you know, I, you, Mark read a few moments ago how um, Jesus referenced Jonah. And he said, uh, look, you know, you, you asked for a sign. But the only sign I'm going to give you is the prophet Jonah. What happened to him inside a fish I'm going to do in a grave. And uh, Jesus says in this passage that he is a greater Jonah. 
And I want to kind of walk you through why that's so, why it is that that Jesus is a greater Jonah. So in the book of Jonah, you remember the story, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Jonah rejects the word of the Lord. Jonah said, no, I won't, and he ran. Jesus, however, Jesus, whereas the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, Jesus is the word. Where Jonah rejects the word of the Lord, Jesus embodies the word. Where Jonah said, no, I won't, and ran, Jesus said, yes, I will, and he served. Where Jonah despised God's grace and mercy, Jonah is cast into the sea, Jonah comes near to death, and Jonah sat in the darkness of a whale. Where Jonah despised God's grace and mercy, Jesus demonstrated it. Where Jonah is cast into the sea, Jesus is nailed to a cross. Where Jonah came near to death, Jesus tasted death. Where Jonah sat in the darkness of a whale, Jesus lay in the darkness of a tomb. And then finally, we read, you know, in that series that Jonah was spat up on a beach, you know, that he preaches a message of judgment And that Jonah's message, eight words, saved a city. Well, in contrast to Jonah, uh, you know, Jesus wasn't spat up on a beach. Jesus rose from a grave. You know, Jesus didn't just preach a message of judgment. He satisfied God's judgment on the cross. And where Jonah's message saved a city, Jesus' death has the potential to save the entire world. This is why we would say that Jesus is a greater Jonah. Now, Jonah is an example of something that you've heard me talk about before. Because uh, I like to say that the prophets, the lives of the prophets and the saints, weren't given for us to emulate. In other words, they were given to us to point us to a Savior to adore. So Jonah is a great example of this, right? Because he ran from God, so he becomes an example of what not to do. And here's why this matters, because sometimes when we read through the Bible, we read it as if it's a collection of hero stories to give us people to emulate or look like. In other words, we say things like this, well, follow God like Abraham, defeat your giants like David, lead your people like Nehemiah, be courageous like Daniel. But Jonah reminds us, doesn't he, that there's a lot of things about the saints and the prophets that we don't want to emulate. And it isn't just Jonah. Moses had an out-of-control temper. Abraham had a habit of lying to get out of trouble. David committed adultery, lied about it, and then murdered someone to cover it up. At the end of his life, Nehemiah lost control and went wolverine on everybody. The text literally says he got so angry with the leaders of Israel, he pulled out their beards and ripped off their clothes. So there are a lot of things about the Old Testament saints that we don't want to emulate. But I have an even deeper concern than that. When we take children, or adults for that matter, through an emulation approach to Old Testament characters, it leads to a moralism, a kind of moralism, and it leads us away from the gospel. 
Listen, we aren't saved because we lead like Nehemiah or have courage like Daniel or a heart like David. We are saved because of our faith and trust in a risen Savior and Him alone. Furthermore, we are not called to follow Moses, David, or Nehemiah. We are only called to follow Jesus, who is a greater Jonah. So today, we're going to begin a brand new series that we're going to call Follow. And we're going to ask the question each and every week, how is it that you need to follow Jesus more closely? In other words, what needs to be your next step as a follower of Jesus? Because do you know how it is that you follow somebody? You do it one step at a time. So what needs to be your next step in your journey with Jesus, in your relationship with him? Now, what I'd want you to know about the invitation to follow Jesus is that he extended this invitation to every single kind of person imaginable. He issued it to rich people, to poor people, to people that were spiritual, to people that weren't spiritual, to people that were religious, to people that were irreligious, to all kinds of people. He would look them in the eye and he would say, follow me. In fact, I want to take you to just one account of this today. It's found in the book of Matthew, and it's actually a story about Matthew. So Matthew is telling this story about himself. And so we're going to start here, Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Now let's just stop there. Uh, We know from this verse that Matthew was a tax collector, otherwise he wouldn't have been sitting at a tax collector's booth. Now, the only person that I can think of that we would compare a tax collector to in terms of the emotion that that would elicit in a Jew in the day of Jesus is, you know the 22-year-old kid who hangs out at the 7-Eleven and when middle schoolers go over there to buy candy, he sells them drugs, Like, I want you to think about the revulsion that you feel. So, and that probably doesn't even do it justice. Tax collectors, because they collected taxes on behalf of Rome, and no Jew wanted Rome, uh, wanted to serve under Rome. And so they resented paying taxes. And to make matters worse, tax collectors would collect all kinds of taxes. It just went on and on. There was a poll tax, a bridge tax, an income tax, a food tax, a harbor tax, a crossroad tax, a wine tax, a property tax, and it went on and on and on. So these Jewish peasants would work hard all day and then have to give a substantial amount of money over to a government that they resented. And it was even worse than that because tax collectors were famous for cheating the system. In other words, for charging more than they should so that they could pocket the difference for themselves. So tax collectors were considered the very lowest rung of society. They weren't allowed to go into the temple at all. They weren't allowed to offer sacrifices for themselves. They were excluded from religious worship in Israel. I mean, this was a big deal. And tax collectors would be paid so much money by, in this case, Rome, it was almost impossible for them to say no. 
But because they said yes, they were immediately despised by uh, the communities that they lived in because they were traitors, they were betrayers. So Jesus walks up to Matthew, who's collecting taxes, who's a traitor to his country. And remember, Jesus is a rabbi. So Jesus, you know, you would expect Jesus to come and to call Matthew out. In other words, you'd expect him to walk up at this point, and, uh, and, he, and as a rabbi, he would have been justified, wouldn't he, in saying to Matthew uh, and, and calling him out, but he doesn't do that. Jesus looks at Matthew, the tax collector, and Matthew would never forget this. And he simply says, he doesn't call him out. He just says, come and follow me. In other words, come and join my group. Come and be a part of my my posse. And I could imagine there was a groan from the other disciples at this point. Because when those disciples, they were good Jewish young men, right? So they despised Matthew. We know that because of what he did. I would imagine they were like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. They're questioning Jesus' judgment at this point. And then it gets worse. Listen to this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, this seems a little odd, doesn't it? I mean, why would Matthew just get up and follow? Well, remember, Jesus is a famous rabbi. He's doing miracles. Crowds are following him wherever he goes. He's a rock star at this point. And it was every Jewish boy's dream to grow up to eventually one day become a rabbi. Only the best of the best of the best of Jewish young men, the best students, the best learners grew up to become rabbis. And remember, I said just a moment ago that Matthew, as a tax collector, was wasn't even able to go into the temple. He wasn't even able to offer any sacrifices for himself. So here's a famous rabbi who's inviting him to join his group. Now, notice that Jesus didn't look at Matthew and say something like this. Hey, Matthew, if you'll do A and B, then you can come and follow me. Or, hey, Matthew, if you'll stop doing this, hey, Matthew, if you'll start doing that, then you can begin to follow me. Jesus didn't say that. Or, hey, Matthew, you know, if you check these three boxes, then you can become my follower. He didn't say any of that. He just said, I want you to follow me just the way you are. And then look what happens in verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. So listen, in the eyes of the disciples, this goes from like bad to worse. Not only has Matthew been invited into the group, but now they got to go hang out at his house. And guess what? Because Matthew was excluded from worship in Jewish society, the only other people he knew were other tax collectors. Those were the only other people he could hang out with, like the worst of the worst, the bottom of the barrel. And do you think that his disciples were okay being at Matthew's house? Well, I can guarantee you they were not. So they're sitting there and they're thinking, man, this is awkward. Ugh. I'm uncomfortable. I don't like being here. 
And I can tell you this, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're in the room this morning, Jesus is going to put you in some awkward situations. He's going to put you in some situations where you're a little uncomfortable. Maybe you don't want to be there. And how are you going to handle those moments? And what are you going to say in those moments? While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners were there. Now, what you don't see in this description is there's actually two categories, and tax collector is even lower than sinner. Like, so sinners would say, yeah, I'm a sinner, and I've sinned to the degree that I can't make sacrifice for myself in the temple, but at least I'm not a tax collector. Because they're traitors, and they're betrayers, and cheaters, and liars, and at least I'm none of those things. See, this is what's coming out here. I mean, they had their own realm, tax collectors did. So Matthew's only friends, right, were other tax collectors. And not only did they not, not only could they not make sacrifices for their sins, they wouldn't have even bothered anyway. So now Jesus goes to Matthew's house. Matthew invites everybody he knows. And what I want you to see is this. Jesus was extremely comfortable with people that were nothing like him. And people that were nothing like Jesus were extremely comfortable with him. Have you ever been around somebody and they're just so comfortable in their own skin? It kind of makes you more comfortable. Well, that was what Jesus was like to sinners and to tax collectors. Jesus was just like that. And here's why I say this. This is why it's so important. If you're here this morning and you're visiting with us, we're so glad that you're here. But if there's been a moment where you haven't felt completely welcome and you haven't felt completely comfortable, that's our fault. That's on us. That's not who our Savior was. Wherever our Savior went, people that were unlike him wanted to be with him. So they would follow him wherever he would go. And so Jesus is at Matthew's house now with his disciples, but this invitation to this tax collector didn't get issued in a vacuum. There are people actually watching. In fact, look what it says in verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, now the Pharisees were the most elite, the most educated religious teachers of the day. And the reason they're watching Jesus is because Jesus, wherever he goes, he's attracting huge crowds. And so as he's gaining influence, they're beginning to lose influence with the crowds. This is very concerning to them. So they're following him around. And when they see what he's just done, because in their mind, no self-respecting rabbi would invite a tax collector to be part of his group. So they question his disciples and they ask this question, Matthew 9, 11, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So in other words, the Pharisees are saying this, look, we're confused. He's a rabbi. He's a holy man. We're holy men. He's a law keeper. We're law keepers. So why is he hanging out with sinners? Why is he hanging out with the lowest of the low? Why is he hanging out with people that everybody else has given up on? Why is he choosing to hang out with people like them instead of people like us? Why is that? 
So in verse 12, Jesus answers, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute that you're Matthew. Jesus had said, come follow me. You've invited Jesus to your home. Jesus is eating at your dinner table, and he calls you sick. I don't know if any of you, that would offend any of you or not. I mean, I, we don't know for sure how this went down or what happened. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I would imagine that um, Jesus would have just smiled and said, Well, Matthew, of course you're sick. You're a tax collector. You know, yeah, you're sick. And so are all of your friends. That's why I came. I came, you know, I came for you. You already knew that. I mean, Matthew, why are we even having a discussion about this? You know something's wrong. And so let's just be honest in this room for just a minute. I mean, let's be real with one another for a minute. I mean, isn't it true that every one of us in this room, including me, we're not consistent with our own rules? We often say one thing and do another. I would, I would say to you that I think it's wrong for people to tell a lie, but ask me if I've ever told a lie. See, listen, hypocrisy is not a Christian problem. Hypocrisy is a human being problem because nobody perfectly lives up to their own value systems. Isn't it true, Dad? That some of the rules that you have for some of your kids, they don't apply to you? Isn't it true that, um, you know, you sometimes chastise your children for doing some of the very same things that you yourself do? I mean, you don't even always do what you ask your employees to do. Or the way that you, you don't always act the way you expect your co-employees, your co-workers to act. I mean, you know, come on, you know that if there is a God that you've broken his rules. You know, come on, you know that if there's a judgment day that you're going to come up short. You know that if the standard is Jesus, that you don't measure up. You don't need me to tell you that. And I think that because Jesus was so comfortable with people that weren't like him, that he could say, he could tell them they were sick, but he would do it in such a way that they could receive that, they could hear that. And I think that was true of Matthew. But listen, if you think Matthew was offended by what Jesus says, check out, Jesus is about to take it up a notch in the uh, offensive category. So in verse 13, here's what he says to the Pharisees. But go and learn what this means. Oh, this was so offensive to the Pharisees. Remember, they're the top of the top. They, they teach other people. They don't learn. They teach. If somebody wants to learn, they come to them. That's exactly why Jesus said it this way. Go and learn what this means. Uh, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So what Jesus is saying is, look, I'm on a mercy mission. I didn't come to give people what they deserved. I came to give people an opportunity, an opportunity to know me and to follow me and to walk through their lives with me as their leader. I mean, it's so beautiful. Um, so he says, look, I'm on a mission. I'm on a mercy 
mission. And then finally, look what happens next. I'm going to get back to my outline here where I can follow this. It says, for I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. And uh, listen, here's what I want you to hear. Even this day, today, right now, Jesus is still issuing this invitation. This invitation. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be content to be part of a church or a group or a group of people that just want to sit in a, in a little huddle, in a little fellowship, and be content to behave and believe in the, in the right way without going out and partnering with Jesus to seek and save the lost. And here's why that matters so much. Because when a church gets content to just be in a little huddle where people want to believe the right way and behave the right way and not partner with Jesus in this calling, they will become the people in this story that Jesus is the hardest on. Do you know what they'll become? They'll become a group of Pharisees. They'll become a group of people that are real good at judging other people. In fact, it's no coincidence that when you ask unchurched people what words they would use to describe Christians, do you know what most of them say? Yeah, judgmental. That, well, they're judgmental. Friends, we're not meant to be known for that. We've got to repent of that. We've got to change the way we think about people that are far from God. Why? Because that's what our Savior did. He didn't come to call people that were perfect or healthy. He came to call sinners. So here's what I want to do. I just want to kind of walk through this story, think about it from a big picture perspective. We're going to make, just make four observations about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Just four observations about what that looks like and what that means, okay? So number one, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, look at me, being a sinner is a prerequisite, it's required. You can't follow Jesus without offering up your sin to him. Following Jesus, it, that is a prerequisite. It, you you got you to gotta do it. You know, you got to acknowledge that you yourself are a sinner. Number two, and in fact, this is so big. In fact, the less perfect a person was the greater their candidacy to be uh, an amazing follower of Jesus. And so here's why that matters so much. I want you to listen to me. There is no sin. There is no sin. There is no habit. There is no addiction. There is no illness. There is no problem that puts you outside the circle of those that have been invited to follow Jesus. You may say to me, well, Brad, you don't know me. No, I don't know you, but I know Jesus knows you. And the Jesus that knows you is comfortable inviting you to follow him, no matter where you are on the spiritual spectrum. Matthew wasn't even on the spectrum, and Jesus invited him to follow him. 
right? And I'll tell you this. Here's the second observation I want to make. Following Jesus is how you learn to trust him and how you grow in love and affection for him. So listen, listen, listen. If you're, not, if you're here this morning and you would just have to kind of confess, Brad, I don't really know that I love Jesus very much. I mean, I don't really know how much I love Jesus. I can tell you why that's true. It's true because you're not following. Because if you were following, if you were living close to him, if you were living out of your relationship with him, oh, it wouldn't take you very long before your heart would burst with love for him. And I'll tell you this, as far as having to believe, you know, have it all nailed down and believe everything to begin Jesus, well, none of his disciples perfectly believed. Think about this. Jesus constantly challenged the belief of his disciples. For three years, some of his disciples didn't believe until they finally saw him resurrected from the dead. And he was constantly challenging them. Hey, have more faith. Come on, shore up your belief a little bit. What I'm telling you is that even if you're not totally sure, even if you're still processing this, you can begin to follow Jesus. And as you do, you will become certain of his resurrection from the dead. And you'll, your heart will begin to burst with love for him. Honest to goodness, really. Now, um, number three, the invitation to follow, and this is so immensely important, the invitation to follow is an invitation to relationship, to relationship with Jesus. Notice the first thing Jesus does when he asks Matthew to follow him. What's he do? He goes to his house. They sit down at dinner together. This is a relational call that he's still making to men and women today. And so before he asked Matthew to do anything else, he went to his house and he sat down and he had dinner with him. Look at Mark 3.14. Notice that he appoints the 12, why? That they might be with him. In other words, before he sends them, sends them out to preach, before he sends them out to heal, before he sends them out to do one single thing, he's just simply with them. And then in John, he's talking to the same group of people, these same followers of himself. And he, he says this in John chapter 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, he's saying, look, if you're drawing out of your relationship with me, you'll have more than enough for every single day. But you've got to draw from me. You've got to stay close to me in the same way that a cell phone can't run without a battery you can't live without me this is a call to relationship now you know in Jesus day all rabbis had students and every student wanted to be like their rabbi. They wanted to be close to their rabbi. They wanted to say the things their rabbi said. They wanted to be able to do the things their rabbi did. They wanted to go where their rabbi went. 
And so sometimes when one rabbi or one student of a rabbi wanted to bless the student of another rabbi, he would say something to him. And here's the word he would use. He would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. In other words, may you follow them so closely that like when they step and their sandal flips up, you would be so close to them that their dust would just completely cover you and it would be in every single pore because you're walking so closely with your rabbi. That's the invitation that Jesus is offering here. And I want to be clear, it is not an invitation to rule-keeping. You're not called to follow the Ten Commandments. You're called to follow Jesus. You're not called to follow Moses or Nehemiah or anyone else. Only Jesus. And listen, here's why this is so important. People don't grow and change through rule keeping. You can't do it. It doesn't work. People grow and change through loving relationships. Let me give you a great example. Think about your marriage. How many of you wake up every day and go, okay, dear, here's your five rules for today. Hey, here's your ten rules for the weekend. I'm talking about something beyond a honeydew list. Right? How many? No, nobody does that. Why do you do things for your wife? It's because you love her. Why do you do things for your husband? Because you love him. Love is what prompts service, sacrifice, and change. Rules can't pull that stuff out of us. So this is why when Jesus looked at Matthew, he said, follow me, be with me, come to dinner with me, I'll sit at a table with you, I'll eat the food that you eat. Why did he say that? Because he knew that the only way Matthew was going to change was as if he was with Jesus through that relationship. Listen to me, here's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees looked at people and they said, hey, if you change, you can join us. If you check the boxes, you can be one of us. Churches should never do that. Do you know what churches should say? They should say, hey, join us and you will change. Join us and you'll get different. Join us and you'll become a better dad. Join us, become a part of us, be a follower of Jesus. You'll become a better spouse. Churches should never say, check all these boxes and then you can come and be one of us. Because that's not what Jesus did. Number four, and then we're done. Following Jesus is an invitation. This is so important in Western culture in particular. Following Jesus is an invitation to community. I want you to listen to me. When Jesus invited Matthew to follow him, Matthew was following him around 11 other disciples of Jesus. They were all following him together, and that was part of the plan. Remember I said that Matthew was a tax collector, so he worked for the Roman government. Let me tell you about one of the other disciples that Jesus recruited. It was a man by the name of Simon, uh, otherwise known as Simon the Zealot. Now Simon was called a zealot because a zealot wanted to burn Rome to the ground. Zealots incited violent uh, rebellions and insurrections against Rome. Zealots believed in violence if it would overthrow the Roman government. So let me just ask you a question. How do you think Simon the Zealot got along in a small group with Matthew the tax collector? 
You think that was an accident? You think that that was just an oversight on Jesus' part? Oh, I should have recruited two guys that were more alike. No, that was part of the plan. Jesus wanted to take their hatred for one another, their revulsion at even looking at one another, and day after day after day, shape and mold and change that as they watch Jesus do stuff together. Just day after day after day. And finally, there came a day where their identity in Jesus was more important to them than any, any identity they brought into the group, any conviction. And God, the Lord Jesus turned their hatred for one another into forgiveness and into love and into brotherhood. Listen to me, this is why you can't stay home and watch television preachers and become conformed into the image of Jesus. You can't do it. You know why? Because Christian community is meant to be gritty. Christian community happens in our disagreements with one another. This is why we talk so much about this thing called a culture of honor. Mike's going to stand up and he's going to talk about it again. Why? Because it is so important how we disagree with one another. That we learn to love one another, not the way that we would want to be loved, the way that our Savior loved us. Christian community is one of the things God uses to mold and shape you. It's meant to be hard. It's me you're meant to bump up against and have to do life with people that aren't like you and that disagree with you because it's only through bumping up against them that you can learn how to love. Okay, so I'm over. So here's what I'm going to do. Listen, this community thing, I can't emphasize it enough because I think we have this idea that, you know, hey, when we, when we follow Jesus, hey, it's just me and Jesus. I'm saying yes to him. I'm not saying yes to anybody else. Oh, yes, you are. You're saying yes to his other followers because you are now numbered among them. The call to follow Jesus is a call to community. And with that in mind, I want you to check out your screen, and then Mike is going to come up and he's going to invite you into community. So check this out.